Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Speak On It, history and genealogy conversations with Janice and Shara Connor. We invite you to join us on Thursdays at 8 p.m. for an engaging exchange with us and our special guests as we cover various topics regarding history, genealogy, and your personal family history stories. Hello, I'm Janice Gilliard. And I'm Sharakana Feliciano. Welcome to all of our listeners, and thank you for joining us for Speak On It, History and Genealogy Conversations with Janice and Sharakana. Our guest is Ruth D. Hunt, and she's joining us to honor the legacy of Richard Dick Lewis, her enslaved second great-grandfather. Ruth has changed the lives of many and is praised for her masterful achievements in the profession of genealogy. Like Alex Haley, her mentor, she wants to awaken people's consciousness and inspire all races to embark upon their personal journeys, explore their roots, and interconnecting relationships. Ruth, thank you for joining us, and welcome. Thank you, Janice and Sherakana, for inviting me this evening to speak on it. It's my pleasure to be here. And I'm honored to share my family's story, and I appreciate this opportunity. Awesome. Ruth, before we begin our conversation, please share a snapshot of your lineage. Oh, I am Ruth Dolores Hunt. I am the daughter of John W. Hunt and E. Patricia Clark. I am the granddaughter of Edgar Lewis Clark and Ruth Kanzler. I am the great-granddaughter of Wyndham Clark and Emma Mitchell. And I am the great-great-granddaughter of Richard Dick Lewis and Elizabeth Seldon. Thank you. That is so beautiful. I always love that. That's awesome. Um, Let's get started with our interview. Our first question for this evening, when did you discover or learn about your enslaved second great-grandfather, Richard Dick Lewis? Well, I've been researching the Clark and Lewis branch of my family tree for over 40 years. August 1970, my grandfather put together a family reunion to honor his son, Edgar Lewis, Jr., uh, my Uncle Ed. He had retired from the United States Navy, and it was a celebration to bring all the family together because he and his family lived in San Diego, California. And so we began with a typed and hand-drawn family tree that my Uncle Ed made up and it consists of only three generations. Today, I have expanded this branch of our family tree to nine generations. Excellent. So um, how you kind of touched on it a little bit, Ruth, but how long have you been researching um, his journey? Well, you know, as you know, in genealogy, you know, you begin searching and then you, get, you hit a brick wall then you start mm-hmm. working on another branch, so you start, as I mentioned, probably um, about eight 
different branches by just mentioning my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. So when you hit a brick wall, you start working on something else. And so it's been off and on for about, you know, 40 years, I would have to say, because you, you, you uncover information as you go along, and information becomes available. And, you know, the genealogy has become very popular over the last 40 years. So you have a lot of resources that we didn't have in the beginning. And, you know, I I believe that um, I'm the bridge that links the generations before me with the generations Mm -hmm. behind me. And it's a Cherokee belief that we are responsible for seven generations. They believe that you belong, mm. that you're responsible for those before you and after you. So I, it's my responsibility to knit the hearts together with love and respect for the stories of our ancestors. So it's ongoing. I like that. The next question is, when and where was he born? Also, when did he pass? If you could just tell us a little bit about his, you know, beginning. Okay. Well, um, I mean, that's easy to tell, but, you know, it's it's a story behind everything. But he was born in Glade Springs, Virginia. Um, Richard was uh, a son of uh, his enslaver, or his mother was enslaved. She was a Cherokee woman. Her name was Hannah Lewis. And her um, enslaver, which I didn't have this this information 40 years ago, but as time has gone on, I've uncovered it. So there was a family Bible. We didn't have that information in 1970, but as I said, we had another reunion, and you start to trace backwards. And so a relative of ours or a great aunt, um, she had the Bible. So we only got this Bible uh, 20 years ago. So in the Bible, it lists Richard Lewis was born February 17, 1834, in Saltville, uh, and that's in Washington County, Virginia. He passed in November 6, 1909, and he, according to the, the oral history, he was buried in Tenbridge, uh, Mahanam Church Cemetery, but at that time I didn't know it was a cemetery, but it was once a Cherokee village. Mm. And the oral history was that he was buried beneath an oak tree. And it took me 25 years to find this tree. It took me 25 years to find this town because, as you know, in our cities they changed the names of streets. And, and towns, and certainly that was indicative of that time period because Glade Springs, Virginia was actually, it had a Native American name. It was called Pasasamiwami was the name of it. But because, and, and it took me a long time to find that information, and I went to the DAR library to get that information. But since then, Wikipedia has the name of the town. You can Google it, Google it. and it was once a Cherokee community, and they used to have um, Olympic Games there. This is in southwest Virginia, going towards, going down 81, going towards Bristol, Virginia. It's about an hour away from Bristol, Virginia, Bristol, Tennessee. But it took me 25 years to find it. 
So, you know, you have to be patient with genealogy. You're not going to get all the answers right away, but you file uh, bits of information away because you're going to circle back around to it later and you'll figure, oh, yeah, that's where that came from. So um, that is where he's buried. Um, I have on my website, I put up his his photograph is there, the cemetery is there, and when I when I found it, because you know, this work is very very spiritual, and so mm-hmm. I was in Glade Springs, Virginia, for a homecoming with my mother, and I I I belong to a genealogy society or a historical society, so it's very important when you're researching um, your family's home places to try to yes. see if they have a historical society because a lot of them may have information concerning your family or in my case I was able to contribute information because a lot of them in certain parts of Virginia they don't have a lot of information on African Americans they certainly don't have any information on Native Americans either right but they're right. interested they're interested in your research. They're interested in putting it there, and sometimes they're not so um, open to, um, how should I put this, they're just sort of closed to the way they um, move to you when you're asking questions about uh, enslaved people or Native American people. I found I have found in my research when I mention Native American, they are like, they are no Native Americans no Native Americans here or were here, hmm. or you or you speak of Native Americans, but they were um, they they're like romanticized and they were savages. Right. And you know, I want to say, well, because you know, you really can't say what you want to say because you're trying to get information. <laughs> but right, right, right. I wanted to say, well, you, you took their land, you know, you 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 took advantage of their women, you treated them in, right. you know. Inhumane. So, you know, in my research, um, I had the opportunity, and this is another thing that I really stress to um, people when they're doing their research, speak to your oldest living relatives at any point that you're researching. Always seek out the oldest living relative. So I had the good fortune that I started researching many, many years ago. And so... When you're trying to put the pieces together and you, you'll say, well, um, I think the great-grandfather's name was Richard, but they didn't have any more information. I think they call, I, I think I wrote somewhere that they called him Dick, mm-hmm. but yeah. then it wasn't sure. Then it was a controversy in the family about whether or not they were Clarks or whether they were Lewises. So we had a mm. great aunt who wrote a letter and said, you could look all you want for Clarks because all of my people are Clarks my mother, my uncles, and back about three generations, all the, all the way, all the um, um, generations to Richard are all Clarks. And one of the relatives said, well, you know, your great-grandfather is the one who changed the name from Lewis to Clark. And she wrote me this very strong letter about, you know, you're never going to find anything because we were not Lewis's. We were, we were, we were not Clarks. We are Lewis's. And so I had mm. put that into my presentations at that time because you know she spoke, she spoke so strongly about it. But it was my great grandfather who had changed the name, and right. it was in the Bible. So you know the Bibles 
it's important what they write in the Bible. But it wasn't yes. until I found the cohabitating record because it, the mm. oral history was that the slaveholder was the father of Richard. So and when you I found, found it at the, the Library of Virginia. Yes, I went to the Library of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, now the reason why I went to the Library of Virginia because I told you this work is spiritual. When I was at this um, homecoming where I found the cemetery, it was a woman that I met at a, a Caucasian woman that I met at the cemetery. Because you know, a lot of the Caucasians they have all the information about the black folks, so you have right. to. You know, you have to, you got to make friends with them. You got to figure out, you know, how to get the information because they have the information. So the yeah. woman was there, and and so um, we t- we told the gentleman that we were looking for the grave site. So this gentleman took us up into this cemetery because I was told by the historical society that Mahanam Cemetery was in Clinchburg, which it was in Clinchburg back in the day, but they changed the name to Clinchburg. You know how they do that. And so right. when we went in, he said to me, oh, the black people are over there. They're over there. Because because mm. during the Civil War, the, the Confederate soldiers took over this cemetery, and they had very huge headstones of the Confederate soldiers. And this gentleman, that his name was Bill Rector, he was the one who showed us. He was going to the cemetery when we ran into him, and he showed us how to go up in there. So he was like a specialist on this cemetery. So he said, oh, the black people are over there. Hmm. So my mother was with me, and I said, oh, and I started walking over to the cemetery. And as I'm starting to walk over where he's pointing to, I see this big oak tree as it had been described to me by my great aunt. She had said they're buried beneath this tree. And so when I saw the tree, wow. oh, something came over me, oh, the tree. And I just could not hold back the tears. You know, I just went into uh, crying, and he said, oh, he looked at me. I said, well, these were Native American people. These were the Cherokee people. And then he looked at me, and he said, oh, you look like them. Oh, yeah, you look like them. He said, yeah, you see, wow. do you see um, the stream that's running down beside the stream? Because Native people always set up camp next to a stream. Look at the stream. And as I'm looking over at the stream, here's a man riding over on a horse, riding along the stream on a horse. So that was like some kind of symbolic thing for me. I don't know. I just sort of processed that. And as I went right. to the to the to the grave sites, you know, because they were these, uh, it's on my website. It was, you know, these these headstones that were skinny and tall and pointy, different ones. And of course, because these were the black people, when they mowed the lawn for this graveyard, they had knocked the, the headstones all over on a lot of the headstones. And so, mm. you know, I started trying to piece them together, and the gentleman says to my mother, oh, you know, she's over there crying. He said, you know, all those genealogists, they all act like that. You know, they all <laughs> cry a lot at this. <laughs> it's an emotional so experience, I, especially when you find I what you're looking for. To, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I got myself together, but... um. The point about it was this lady that was there, I was, you know, telling her my story. She was very lovely and very delightful. Do you know that three days later, she, it came out in the paper. It was in, this was happening in 2010. And it came out into the, in the paper that in, in Marion, Virginia, it was in the, head of the, head, um, the, the front page of the paper that a, a big discovery 
of these um, cohabitating records had been located mm. in the courthouse. So they have the, the black people information. Usually it's in another place within the courthouse, underneath something or behind something or tucked away somewhere. But she wrote, she sent me the newspaper article. And in the article it said that they had sent these records to Richmond and it was the cohabitating records of slaves and that it really I mean, you know, that they did really have slaves, even though, you know, the, the people of today, they want to not acknowledge the fact that they had slaves in some of these towns. So anyway, right. this newspaper article was posted July 28, 2010. And when I saw that and knew that they had taken the records to um, the Library of Virginia, that's how I ended up going to the Library of Virginia. Then I looked through the records, and it took me a while so when you do your searching, so I was looking for Richard Lewis. It wasn't. It was abbreviation of Richard, and the Lewis mm-hmm. was a spell L E W I S. It was spelled L O U I S. But when I looked at mm-hmm. the children's name on the register, I could see that those were his children, and the wife's name was Elizabeth, but they had her down as Lizzie. So I knew that was it. I got. So excited! I just said, you know, I don't know if you genealogists out there, you know that when you hit something, it's like you're in a casino and you hit the lottery, you hit you hit the jackpot, and you start, you know, making a commotion. And so the librarian came over to me, and while I was all excited, he went and pulled the the will of the slaveholder, which was William uh, William F. Clark. You know, it's real when a librarian. Start stepping in and helping you, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they know how important it is to you. They they know that uh, people of color are seeking and looking to put the pieces together to bring the families yeah. together that were separated during slavery. So they some of them are very sensitive, and they really do help you. And I find that the Library of Virginia, I, even if I talk call on the phone, they cannot be nicer. They cannot be more helpful. Um, I spoke to someone this week. They sent me um, a deed that had the... The, the homestead information about on Richard Clark. So as I said, you continue to do your research. I could have started this 20 years or 30 years ago, but I'm still uncovering information that helps me paint the picture of who Richard Lewis was. Because you can look yeah. at from date of birth to death date, but what is where's all of that information that goes on in between those dates that helps you put the character and the strength of that right. person together. And we're the right. descendants. Right. descendants. We're called to do that work. We're called. Mm-hmm. We're the ones yeah. that are called to look in the historical records and piece together their stories and share and tell their stories. So that's correct. Well, I, I feel that it's a sacred calling. So for me, I feel it's a sacred calling from my, from the ancestors, from my ancestors, to carry yeah. the family flame and to, and it's a blessing. And I'm honored to be called the Brio of my family. I am honored to be the oral history teller. My problem is I got to take our time to sit down and write all of this stuff down because <laughs> we got, I need to leave this for those seven generations that are, you know, in front of me. Right. So, you know. And that's beautiful. And I guess, you know, kind of going just slightly off topic here really quickly, but mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, the, the Cherokee um, – you know, belief about seven generations ahead of you and behind you. And you talked about finding out about this Cherokee ancestry. Did you ever, did you find that the Cherokee culture was kind of passed down in your family um, inadvertently and you didn't realize it was? 
Well, um, you don't realize yeah. it. You don't realize that it is because it is because our because right. our cultures are so blended. Our cultures right. are blended. And so when you are living off the fat of the land, as my mother would say, you know, you, you know how to, um, to, you know, to give thanks for the land, for, for, the, the, for the grass, for the, for the dirt, for the, to be right. able to grow a harvest. To, and my mother, she, you know, bless her soul. You know, she would go with me, and she was so patient to sit with me as I do this research. But my mother actually sat down and wrote out, how the house looked. My mother was born in 1927. And she, how the mm-hmm. house looked, what was grown on the front of the house, what did they plant. And she said that her grandfather was like the head of the men who went and got the hogs. I don't know if you, if you saw High in the Hog, but it's a yes, tradition mm-hmm. that the men go and they, um, they gather the meat before right. the winter sets in. So they, they, they dig in the ground, and she wrote that in, in there, but they dig in the ground and they put the food down in the ground. They salt the meat. They hang the meat. They have outhouses. So they do that and preserve their food. And the, the way that they cook my grandmother, and my grandmother was originally, her people were from Tennessee, but she mm-hmm. lived in Glade Springs, Virginia. So she cooked in an open open fire. So she, you know, they they knew how to cook in the open fire. My wow. grandmother knew how to bake a cake. She had a, was a wonderful cook, but she cooked on open wood. So they had a house that they cooked in, and they had a house that they slept in mm. down there in, in the south. Because sometimes you do hear of things getting burnt up, the house would burn up because they had long dresses on or because, you know, they they had to cook in the house, but they had an open fire. Somehow the way they put the wood on top of the open flame, and they could cook that way. So when my grandmother moved from Glade Springs, Virginia, to Roanoke, Virginia, which was a, you know, a bustling, you know, town as compared to, mm-hmm. to Glade Springs, and she had a regular, you know, I guess the iron, the iron um, stoves that you put, you could put wood down in there, I think, or cold, and it had, mm-hmm. like, you know, you stick the, you all are too young, but you stick the um, oh, I know. a little prong in it, and and you could put the fire down in there, and you put the, it's mm-hmm. like a a pot belly stove. So she right. didn't know how to cook in that. When she got up to the, the, the city, she didn't know how to cook, and she had to learn how to cook from the open wood fire into into you know into the pot belly stove, and so that was a whole process. But they you know they canned the food, they canned everything for the winter. Their fruits, their vegetables. Um, I, I just think that's why those people live long. My mother, she wanted to make a hundred, yeah. but you know, we grew up on good food. I mean, we we may not have had yeah. a lot. You may not have had a lot of money, but because they knew good food, that's what they prepared right. for their family. Very and they true. Could stretch Very it. true. Very so, true. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. important the impact of living off the land and how that changes one's diet. Yep, for sure. And so I, what and are I some think highlights? Well, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you want to say the highlights. I think um, yeah. my real blessing is that I started doing this research uh, when we start, We had a family reunion, I think, in 1990, and I just started mm-hmm. to interview the granddaughters or, or my mother's first cousin who she sat with her grandmother 
And my aunt, my aunt, my great aunt, Oki, who sat with her grandmother because her mother died when she was seven. And for them to tell me the stories of what they had to say, because I never found my people in the in the slave narratives, but mm-hmm. I had, we had our own narratives. And so they gave me the story of what their grandmother said that you know she was sla- she was bought on a slave block at ten years mm-hmm. old in 1847 that um, she and her sister were sold two times, but when they sold her mother, that she screamed and hollered, and she never saw her mother again. Whenever I think Mm -hmm. of that, it just breaks my heart to know that this story was passed down, that she witnessed that, that she could, could tell the story, and that she would sit on her front porch and she would tell the children the story of how they treated do, treated them during slavery time, that they had to get up in the morning, the men, they would have to get up in the morning at 4 o'clock in the morning and work until sundown, and they beat them with a, they beat them with a whip. They beat them until the, uh, their, their skin opened up. She mm-hmm. said that they, they um, and I'm telling this story for a reason, and that you know they the the women they made their dresses out of the uh, cow feed bags, and oh, they wow. had them sleep on straw like the straw. The straw they would make beds out of the straw. This is during slavery time and what they experienced. So when I think of this story, and I'm happy that I could collaborate this story with about three of the granddaughters who basically said the same story. So as far as my investigation of looking at what was said, then I can really validate that because three different branches or granddaughters from different families, because my great-grandfather, he had, you know, I think eight children. The others had eight, uh, you know, eight children, ten children. They had large families, but they all said the same story. Right. my grandfather, Richard, he was the first man of color to vote in 1870. That's the, they told me that at the Historical Society. So wow, okay, so these, these are some of the highlights about Richard. Yes, mm-hmm. these are the highlights, that they came from such brutal beginnings, and wow. yet um, uh, when I went to the Library of Virginia and I find I get the will of his slaveholder, who was his father. So he said he was leaving everything to his wife and his daughter. But on the second piece on the will, he says, I will that my Negro man, Dick, Hmm. remains with my wife and daughter and work for them as long as they can get along agreeably. But in the event of any difficulty between them, I wish him to require the executor to take him into the possession of a suitable purchaser for himself. Wow. And I desire my executor to sell him at a low price, say two-thirds value of the person whom Dick may have selected as his purchaser. So this was written in 1859. Um. You know, it would have been nice if he had a freedom rather than let him pick someone. And then I thought about it. I pondered on it, and I thought about it, and I said, well, you know, in the state of Virginia, if a slave was free, he'd have to leave the state 
within six months of being free. And that would mean mm-hmm. that he would have to leave his wife and his children behind. And I think that's a reason why a lot of slaves who were free, who did not leave, they stayed behind to work and try to bring their families with them because in Virginia they, they would have to leave. So maybe right. he wrote this up because he knew what the law was. It was interesting that he was concerned about whether or not he would get along with his wife and his daughter after his death because he knew that this was his son. Mm-hmm. So maybe they wouldn't get along, but I had a, a, a you know, I was doing a genealogy writing and this professor was saying he had never seen a will written that way. And it was clear wow. that there, you know, this was his Negro man. But the wife would certainly be upset that he has a Negro man because, like, where did he get him from? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I wanted to share that because these are, the, these are the, the tools that you need to try to seek out to bring your story together because you see how this story is just unwinding. And to think that mm-hmm. he was a slave and he was given the opportunity to pick his own purchaser in 1860, well, in 1865, um, you know, slavery ended. And with that, um, he was able to go from a slave and in 1870, and he was the first person to vote in 1870. In 1879, he established a deed listing his possessions to claim the benefit and the protection of the homestead law of Virginia. So wow. I was just um, so surprised to see that he had three horses, six cows. He had, you know, mm-hmm. um he had chickens, he had a plow, he had two plows, he had horses and buggies, he had two buggies, two wagons. You know, he was a farmer, but I wonder where did he get, you know, how did he acquire this? And then he had land that he had for all his children was like in a, in a, in a section by so-called Clarksville, and he had do- a house for his daughters. When my grandmother and father came back to um, Glade Springs, they lived in a house that Richard had built. Every All of them had a house. And the other cousin that I interviewed, they had a house, but they moved to a city, but they had their land back on the land, and they would go back every year to pick the apples and, you know, the fresh vegetables, and at, they called that harvest time, and then take mm-hmm. and can and, and, and then bring everything back. I mean, I just interviewed her. That was my cousin Beatrice in 1990. But they all told the same story. And I was able to take pictures of the land, where it was. So it was just, you know, it was just a wonderful feeling that, you know, my parents, I'm first generation born in Brooklyn, but my parents both are from Virginia. (laughs) And when they retired and went back to Virginia, I would go to visit them and I would say, okay, we're going to go to your hometown. You know, we would, I would take turns with them. I'd take my father to his hometown, and we would do research on him, and we'd take my mother to her hometown, and we would research her, her, her family. So it's nothing like putting your boots on the ground. It's nothing right. like walking on the land. It's nothing That's like right. meeting people who are happy to meet you and happy to tell you stories of your ancestors. But you've got to go. And as mm-hmm. you go and you connect, 
the ancestors are wanting you to find them. You will get all of these right. clues, Absolutely. these, these mm-hmm. hints. You, you, you'll meet people. I called this woman the other day, and I was wanted to ask her about the Native American um, um, community because her cousin married my Aunt Oki, and so he, to- he told me, Uncle Perkins told me that his grandmother was full-blood Cherokee, and she lived in Mahanam also. So I called her to ask her about that. Well, while I was talking to her, she was asking me, well, who, well, who are you? And I said, oh, my, my mother is Patsy. She said, oh, Patsy, that's my best friend. She was my best friend. Oh, do you know what Aww. that made me feel like? Oh, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> she said she was my best friend. She, she's 94, the same age that my mother would be now because my mom passed um, two years ago. And she could just tell me, oh, your people were such kind people. They were very kind-hearted people. Everyone said that about my great-grandfather, my second great-grandfather, is something. like, And they were easy, very easy. Uh, and, and I don't know if you know Cherokee people, or, but they have this energy about them uh, and a tone, a tone of voice mm. about them also. But... Um, you know, call those old relatives, or you may, or your relatives may be deceased. But if you contact people from those towns, you'd be surprised who knows your people. Those towns are small. A lot of those people have intermarried, and they know one another, and they can tell you stories about your people. Some of them have married into those families. So there's many things for you to uncover. You just have to start the journey. You have to just, con- and you have to be patient. Yes. Yes. You have to be patient. Well, what you're sharing uh, feeds into our next question, and that is, Ruth, what is the importance of oral history and research? Well, I think that the oral history allows you to paint the picture of your ancestor. Mm -hmm. you You can paint the picture of their lives, and it helps you to verify and gives you the leads to uncover the truth of their journey. So, okay, they my family was buried beneath a tree. It was um, they were said that they were um, Cherokee people. Um, Cherokee people, you can't find. You try to you try to go to the Dawes records. You don't see the information there. But a lot of Native people didn't 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 register. A lot of them didn't want to go mm-hmm. west. You know, they wanted to stay in the land that they knew. And and then of course this. Albert Plecker, who changed the census records to read black or white, so it eliminated the um, the native community anyway. So right. I mean, I have, I mean, we have to have another whole That's a talk whole about that. Topic there. That's yep. a whole mm-hmm. other topic. But I mm-hmm. think that the oral history it really blessed me to look for the actual documents by speaking to the the aunts and the great aunts and uh, you know. Uh, my aunt had a restaurant. She used to service both, you know, blacks and white. And I, this woman that I called last week, she painted the picture even more. I knew she had a restaurant. She told me the name of the restaurant was Skipper's Restaurant. She told me that um, that's where she would go date night, that that's where they, she had a jukebox <laughs> in the restaurant. And, you know, my mother never mentioned that there was a jukebox there. And she said, yes, my first date. Now, she's 94. She says, yes, we would date. And that the 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 restaurant was across the road from the train station. So at that time, the train ran from Bristol 
Tennessee to New York City. And the train, the 42, that's the name of the, the train, the 42 would pass through and pass through Gray Springs on Sunday night. And that was a meeting place. So the people in the town, the black people in town, would go down to the restaurant and see who's getting on the train and who's getting off the train. <laughs> <laughs> and they would have a sandwich or they would have dinner. The jukebox would be going. But it was not a lot to do, you know, in the night. This was in the 1940s. Um, right. In the 30s, you know, she had the restaurant from 1936 uh, to, to 49 when her husband passed. So it wasn't a lot to do, but that was like uh, and in the church, and the churches there, they would those small towns. They had a Baptist church, they had a Methodist church, and they had a Presbyterian church that was mostly the white folks. And they had a minister that would come once a month. They would the minister would preach in the Baptist church one Sunday, preach in the Methodist church one Sunday, and so and I had taken pictures of the churches so that you know I would have that for my history. So that's very oh, important. Oh, nice. Take pictures of the land. Take pictures of the yes. churches. Um, and my father's people from um, Marion, Virginia, was the next town over. I took a picture of their church that was established in, in 1865. So um, take the pictures that tell the story of your ancestors. It's yes. important. It's important. And speaking of pictures, just using your words, you've definitely you've painted a very vivid picture yes. for us. And, like, you know, oh. you've, you've taken us through a very, very colorful journey and, um, you know, really put the meat on the bones, you know. Um, and so that kind of, to, to kind of close us out, you know, what are some parting words that you would like to share um, with our listeners? Well, I am honored, and it's a privilege for me to stand on the shoulders of my ancestors. It is this sacred calling for my ancestors that propelled me forward to continue this work. Just knowing their resilience, their value, their valor, their tenacity, Mm -hmm. I answer their call. And I proudly serve as their scribe. I tell their stories to honor their struggles, their hardships, their losses. They never gave in or gave up. Their strength and courage to keep going forward and to pave the way for their descendants, never wavering to obtain freedom. Their determination to go on and build life for their families despite the constant terror of racism is remarkable, and I stand proudly on their shoulders. Beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, um, one of the words that I'm thinking of, um, and you remind us of our last guest, and that is resilience, the story that you shared. And I yeah. love it when you said, I answered their call. That's powerful. Resilience, yeah. and I answered their call. Ruth, thank you yeah. for sharing the legacy of your second great-grandfather with us, along with, you know, sharing um, what you have come across in your research about some of your other ancestors is just very powerful. I've already been receiving feedback, and everybody's been sharing that you're painting a picture for them. This is beautiful. They love it. You're encouraging them to, con- you know, continue their research and tell the stories about their own families. To learn more yeah. about Ruth, please visit her website, Ruth D. Hunt. Dot com. To our listeners, thank you for joining us, and we appreciate all of the support and positive feedback 
you have shared with us, and we're just overwhelmed by um, the numbers and the stats that are coming in um, regarding how many of you are actually listening um, the posts on Facebook and just private messages. Sherrick Khan and I are truly, truly grateful for your support. Yes. Thank you so much. We are. Thank you, Ruth, for being here. And to our listeners, please be sure to tune in next week for Speak On It, History and Genealogy Conversations with Janice and Sherrick Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.